Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good evening. Uh, my name is George Gaskell. I'm a pro-director here, but uh, for the purposes of this meeting, I chair the uh, Literary Festival Group. And I'm delighted to welcome you to this year's uh, final session, a grand finale. Uh, we are working with the Royal Society of Literature, uh, whose event this evening continues our theme on reflections and reflections of the First World War centenary in particular. If you haven't already done so, do look or take a chance to look at the LSE Library's latest digital exhibition, World War I at LSE. I didn't realize my colleagues at that time engaged in battles as they do today, but there we go. Anyway, it's a very interesting uh, selection, seriously speaking, uh, held by the library, which includes pamphlets, military service records of LSE students and government documents. Now, in a moment, I'll hand over tonight's, to tonight's chair, Peter Parker, to introduce our panel. But may I remind you that after this uh, session, finishing about 8.30, we will have a drinks reception outside the theatre, to which you are all most welcome. The uh, reception will include this year's presentation of the LSE Arts Photo Prize and then a performance by an LSE jazz band, the Houghton Street Grooves. Let me say a word or two about our chairman for this evening. Peter Parker, in the middle, is the vice chair of the Royal Society of Literature and the author of two books about the First World War, the Old Lie is about public school idealism and what happened to it in the trenches. More recently, his book, The Last Veteran, is about how the war has been perceived and commemorated since 1918 and the part played by the veterans of this war and how they have shaped the times. He's currently writing a book on A.E. Houseman and Englishness. So without further ado, may I... Welcome, Peter, to introduce his panel. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, and welcome, everybody. Uh, as the more perceptive view of you will have noticed, I'm not Sebastian Folks, who unfortunately is unable to chair the meeting this evening owing to a bereavement. Um, so I have stepped in to take his place, uh, to some extent anyway. Um, uh, we're, we're just gearing up, I suppose, for the centenary of the First World War, um, and it won't be over by Christmas. I think we're in for probably four years of this, but it's quite nice to get in early. Um, there can be probably no one in this room who, in some way or other, hasn't been affected or whose family hasn't been affected generations back by the First World War. Both my grandfathers fought in the First World War and I expect people have uncles, great-uncles, who did as well. Um, the controversy about its causes, uh, about its conduct, and about its cost uh, persist 100 years after it started. And um, the one thing we can say is whether you agree with Max Hastings, who said that it was a necessary war recently on television last week, 
or with Neil Ferguson, who thought it was all a terrible mistake. I think the one thing we can all agree about is that an extraordinary amount of very fine literature emerged from that conflict. And that's our subject this evening. Uh, it's Voices of the Great War. And um, what I'll just tell you how the evening is going to happen. I will introduce the speakers in turn. Um, and the speakers are uh, Tobias Hill, Louisa Young, Timberlake Vertenbaker. And Michael Longley. Sorry, Michael. <laughs> uh, what I'll do is I will introduce them in turn. They will each speak for about 12 minutes. I will ask them one question, and then we'll go on to the next speaker. And then at the end, there'll be about half an hour for questions from the audience when we open it to the floor. Um, could I please say that if you can't hear any of the speakers, could someone wave at me? Um, the microphones, I think, are working very well, but just in case, if there are any problems... Um, the event is being recorded and a podcast should be available later. Um, could I ask you all please to either switch off your mobile phones or if you wish to tweet about this event, put them on silent mode. And I think behind me the hashtag is there for anyone who uses Twitter, which is LSE Lit Fest. Um, so I'm going to start with Tobias, who is a poet novelist and short story writer who's won awards in all categories. His first volume of poem, Year of the Dog, won an Eric Gregory Award. His first volume of short stories, Skin, won the Penn Macmillan Silver Pen Award. And his first novel, Underground, won a Betty Trask Award. He was appointed the first poet in residence at London Zoo in 1999. <laughs> Something that I think is still going on, isn't it, Tobias? Uh, no. Oh, is it stopped? Well, that's a great shame. Anyway, um, out, um, and he's since published three further collections of poetry, Midnight in the City of Clocks, Zoo, and Nocturne in Chrome and Sunset Yellow. He's also published three further novels, The Love of Stones, The Cryptographer, and in 2009, The Hidden. In 2003, he was selected by the TLS as one of the best young writers in Britain, and the following year was selected by the Poetry Book Society as one of their next-generation poets, and was also shortlisted for the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award. His latest novel, What Was Lost, which starts in Bethnal Green in 1948 and describes the effects of another war on several generations, is published later this month. Tobias. I've chosen as my author for this evening um, Alan Fournier, who is the only author we will be looking at who didn't write about the war, um, not in any way he expected to be published at any rate. We have his letters um, from the front, uh, which are rather marvellous. I might quote briefly from those. Um, the reason that I think of Alan Fournier, Henri Fournier, this is his real name, of course, uh, as, of Henri Fournier as a as a voice of the war is because uh, he's one of those writers who had such great potential and was on the cusp of achieving something great, I think, and um, and then was killed in uh, September 1914. Um, 
Alan Fournier's great year was um, 1913. It was in 1913 that his one completed novel was published in book form. Uh, Le Grand Monde, which is known by various names in, in the English language, Le Grand Monde being slightly difficult. Uh, so in this recent edition, it's called uh, The Lost Estate. Um, his book was published. He also, in that year, met again for the first time in, I think, eight years, the, the overriding love of his life, uh, Yvonne de Kifrecourt, who he had um, dreamt of for the last, for, for a large part of his life. Um, he was 28 uh, when he died, so uh, eight years. And a, a great amount of his life went into that first and only completed book. Um, into the book went Yvonne. She becomes Yvonne de Galley in the, in the novel, and she is the... Uh, she is, for a large part of the novel, the unobtainable, uh, dreamlike woman who uh, Moan, the hero, tries to uh, tries to meet again. And in, into the novel also went his his great friendship with Jacques Rivier. There is a, a, again a very close friendship in the novel, and the novel is one of um, it's very much a an adolescent novel. Um, if if Henri Fournier was was master of anything, I, I wrote this in an article years ago. I, I feel he was a master of nostalgia, and the the novel echoes with this feeling of of nostalgia. He's he's a master of it. Um, the book is one in which the the protagonist uh, meets this beautiful girl uh, at a a party at a great house at a chateau. And having, having met her, he can never find the place again. So it's almost a fairy tale. It has elements of, of folklore, of myth, of, of chivalric uh, uh, tales. And uh, Henri Fournier himself was, was, saw himself as a kind of um, chivalric figure for a long time. He, uh, he longed to be that kind of pure knight um, at the same time, of course, he was growing up in a France which looked back to the Franco-Prussian War um, in a way that we didn't have here. The, the, the French youth of that time were um, filled with a sense that they should be the ones to reclaim the lost lands, the lost domains of um, Alsace and Lorraine. Um, and uh, the, the, there's a rather good line from a, a, a play... Um, quoted in this biography um, where um, Maurice, Maurice Barret where a, a father speaks to his son about what he must do to reclaim Alsace and Lorraine we declare so says the father we swear that we're going to train ourselves and rearm ourselves we're going to wait for the right moment and get our revenge son are you sure that the French are going to win? Father, yes, quite sure. Haven't I just told you so? Son, but you never said when, Father, when you're a man. <laughs> so th this is the kind of atmosphere in which um, 
Alan Fournier grew up. Um, he came from a small town, and um, he always retained a, a sense of that uh, small town quality, which uh, you could say is part of the the innocence, uh, the naivety of his writing. Um, but also, looking back from from the present day, there, there's something in that in the naivety of this story of the lost domain, which. Um, I think has something to do with, with a writer before the wars. Um, uh, it wouldn't have been possible to write this book five years later, four years later, certainly not a decade later. Um, it's, it's not just a book of its time, but it's, it's, it's a book that, that occurred at the cusp of the Great War, the First World War. Um, so it's always... I, I, I don't read French. My, my French is laughable. I've never re- uh, read the book in the original. But um, for me, it's, it's, it's always been... It's, well, it's not a perfect novel. It's, it's not in itself a great novel, I would say. Um, it has its flaws. Um, it is sentimental. Because nostalgia is what he tries to capture, that can easily tip over into something else. But... It has uh, a particular quality. It captures this sense of the young man longing for a world which he feels is already lost. Um, and the, the tragedy for the author, of course, is that uh, less than a year after it was published, uh, the world was lost for him. Um, Henri Fournier was a... Um, a lieutenant in the in the French infantry. Um, the circumstances of his actual death were very unclear for many decades after the war. Um, his body was finally found by archaeologists um, um, uh, fairly recently um, and identified by dental records. Um, but um, I feel. What Fournier has in quality with the, the other, the British war writers, British and Irish war writers we're, we're going to hear about, is that he was, he was a brilliant writer. Um, Le Grandmont is, is very well worth reading, but he was never quite a great one because he, he never had the chance. Um, and I will finish, I think, by just reading not a section from the novel itself, which he could read, but um, a note from the diary of um, Jacques Rivière, who was Henri Fournier's great friend and who went back to the uh, area uh, near of the Verdun where Henri Fournier had died and, and tried to find his body. Um, in 1919, I traversed on foot the arduous final stretch of my friend's last movement on this earth, a fearsome place over which and I don't know if it's come back to life since, a truly monstrous solitude held. From Ranzier, where I didn't see a soul, I went on to Vaux-la-Palamé, which had been raised, swept away by the war, sliced away from its perch on the side of the valley, like a thistle cut down by a knife. For a long time, I sat down on a flat stone beside a stream, the murmuring of which was the only sound in the desolation. I climbed the long slope skirting the Bois Bouchot between the trees, their tops lopped off, their branches stripped away, all turned to black. 
but further on, the vegetation had all started to grow again and was already covering the little German cemeteries full of grenadiers where names were already fading. A French soldier or even a French hero could be seen here and there, but there was no date earlier than December 1914. Further on, a town made out of corrugated iron, the wooden frames inside which had served as beds, already rotting and covered in moss. In the embankment of the road, the entrance to deep shelters already fallen in. Then suddenly, all on its own in a copse, ending up there by some sort of miracle, an old hired coupe car, a mocking piece of wreckage. I will stop there. Thank you. Uh, Tobias, uh, you certainly were the, the one when we asked people to choose a, a bit of First World War literature that meant a great deal to them. It, was a sudden, it seemed to us a very left-field choice, but I think you've explained why in this way that it almost looked forward or that, the, that it was already lost. And I wondered if you thought there was a difference that um, after the war, of course, a lot of people wrote about uh, in, in Larkin's famous formulation, Never Such Innocence Again. And there was this idea that Famously, um, the summer of 1914 in Britain was a particularly beautiful summer, and almost it's become prelapsarian. And I just wondered if you thought there was any any difference between the way the English looked back to these these um, lost days and the French, because I suppose Proust, the title says it all, Alors je suis ton And I wondered if you thought there was any difference between the French attitude and the English. There probably are differences, which I, I wouldn't know, but I think there were definitely similarities and. Um, at the time and, uh, and since, um, Henri Fournier has been referred to as the, the, the French Rupert Brooke. Um, he was seen in that way, and it was, it was really after the war, uh, when his, his only novel came out, it, it wasn't especially well received at all. But after the war, when people wanted that sense, uh, wanted to read about that sense of lost innocence, of lost worlds, um, uh, that was when he began to take hold as, as a writer. Um, and in the French imagination, um, I was talking about it with Tim Blake, for, for a very long time, and perhaps still, he, he was uh, you know, not only the voice of adolescence, which he remains, he, he's a wonderful writer about that period, but, but the voice of a lost, a lost voice of, of the war. And it's a case that a, a book can be read differently at different periods and it, it gains a new meaning after the war because he was killed in it partly. Yeah, yeah. And that, I think I would say that's when he becomes a voice of the war. It's, it's, it's not the subject of the book itself but it's the circumstances of his life. Thank you. Well, it's, it's very nice because I think we often think of the literature of the First World War as an entirely British preserve and I think it wasn't until John Silkin did his Penguin book of poetry of the First World War. I think that was in the 70s, and I think that was the first time anyone had done an anthology of war poetry, where actually we realised there were French war poets, there were German war poets, there were Italian war poets. So thank you for bringing up the French element. Um, we're now going to go to Louisa Young, um, and who will be talking about a book that was written and published during the war, rather than the one that was written before. Um, Louisa is a journalist, novelist, and collaboratively and pseudonymously a children's writer. Her first book, A Great Task of Happiness, in 1995, was a biography of her grandmother, the sculptor Kathleen Scott, who was also, of course, the widow of uh, Captain Scott of the Antarctic. Two years later, she published her first novel, Baby Love, 
which is the first volume in her Egyptian trilogy, followed by Desiring Cairo and The Tree of Pearls. Her next non-fiction book, The Book of the Heart, is a celebration of that vital organ in anatomy, medicine, history, literature, religion and art. As one half of Zizou Korda, the other half being her daughter, she's the author of the Lion Boy trilogy, Lee Raven Boy Thief and Halo, published in 2010, in which a girl in ancient Greece goes to war disguised as a boy. Her most recent novel for adults is the best-selling My Dear, I Wanted to Tell You, set in the First World War, and it was selected for the Richard and Judy Book Club and shortlisted for the 2011 Costa Novel Award. She's now written a sequel, The Hero's Welcome, which will be published in May. Louisa. I think when they asked us to do this, words influenced and inspired by were mentioned, which is always a tricky one to work out. I, I read in a, a review that I'd been inspired by Sebastian Foulkes and um, Pat Barker, and I beg to disagree. I thought I was inspired by my grandmother, who worked as an artist at the Clinic for Facial Reconstruction in Sidcup during the First World War, and by Major Harold Gillies, the pioneering surgeon who put people's faces back together when they'd been shot or bombed or burnt to bits in the trenches. <coughs> but I knew perfectly well what I'd been influenced by, because I made the mistake of reading it again after I'd finished my novel. Um, it's this, The Return of the Soldier by Rebecca West. Um, it's actually embarrassing how much I was influenced by it. When I read it again, I see, oh, Lord, yes, beautiful house in the country, domestic setup of a soldier, his wife and his cousin, and an exceptionally beautiful woman who is completely emotionally out of her depth, doing very, very foolish things. Um, I'm just going to go back to being a children's author for a moment here. Um, how many of you have read this? Oh, good, not too many. Well, if any of you have both read that and this, you will know that the overlap is embarrassing. I didn't do it on purpose. This is what happens. You read, you get influenced. Ten years later, you're thinking about it, and you think, oh, dear. Anyway, The Return of the Soldier, written during the Great War and published during the Great War, not only that, which makes it interesting already, it was written by a woman. She was 24 years old, and she was already a successful journalist, feminist. She'd written a book about Henry James. She was also the origin of the wonderful quote, I have never been able to find out precisely what feminism is. I only know that people call me a feminist whenever I express sentiments that differentiate me from a doormat. <laughs> so, we love her. Um, Siegfried Sassoon famously expressed his disgust at the complacency and and ignorance of those at home who didn't really know what was going on over there. And no doubt there was a vast amount of that. But this novel shows that that was absolutely not all there was. It deals with the pity and the tragedy of war from the civilian side of the mirror. So once again, we're coming at it from a slightly old angle. The war itself is never mentioned in this book, or at least one's never in it. When it comes up, which is only briefly, it comes as dreams and memories. The book itself is set in Berkshire, or possibly Buckinghamshire. Anyway, somewhere not very far away and peaceful and nice. But what Rebecca West is dealing with here is the suffering of women. 
um, both on their own behalf and on behalf of the soldiers that they love. There's a wonderful sentence near the beginning which sets the tone. It's so polite, so ladylike, and so yearning. Beauty on this day was an affront to me because, like most English women of my time, I was wishing for the return of a soldier. Be careful what you wish for. The plot of this novel is what nowadays people call high concept. Captain Chris Baldry is sent home with shell shock. He's been in the trenches for a year. His shell shock manifests itself as a particular form of amnesia. He has forgotten the past ten years. He has forgotten his wife, Kitty. He has forgotten that he had a son. He has forgotten that his son died. He has forgotten the war. What he remembers is that he is in love with the sweetheart of his youth, a woman called Margaret. Margaret is who he wants and who he demands. The story is told by his cousin Jenny, who lives at the family home, Baldry Court, and who is also in love with him, um, but she doesn't acknowledge it. Jenny is in many ways a liar. She's unreliable and lonely, and she's always peeking and watching people through windows and pretending she shouldn't have been there, and, and she judges people. The story opens with Jenny happening on Kitty, who is brushing her hair in the bedroom of the dead child. And Jenny goes in and starts making snide comments to the reader about how heartless Kitty is, which we take as truth, because we don't know Jenny yet. However, it's one of the book's extraordinary achievements that, this is my opinion of her, but um, different readers read the characters completely differently. Sadie Jones, who wrote an introduction to this edition, and who knows a few things herself about how to write an unreliable narrator, she sees Jenny as the moral, spiritual, and emotional compass of the book, uncompromising in the clarity of her vision. I, however, think that Jenny is a great big snob, consumed by jealousy and half in love with Kitty, as much as with Chris, and also with the sort of surface beauty of her life with Kitty in this lovely house where they all go around straightening the cushions the whole time. Margaret, meanwhile, is shy and dull and married and quite old and plain. She has hands which are red and seamed, and worst of all, she's poor. Her overcoat is appalling. She wears a a sticky straw hat, but lately renovated with something out of a little bottle bought at the chemist's. So, disparaging. Her house looks as if it smells of damp, and she steers her husband round the vegetable patch, thanking him for keeping her in cabbages. (laughs) Um, But she has a pure soul, and she represents a pure idea of love which doesn't care about age or poverty or smelling of damp or cabbages or bad hats or any of that. And Chris loves her, and this is something that sort of can't be got by. Margaret, like Kitty, has lost a baby son, and the loss of two boy babies, although it's very, un- very much underplayed in the novel, it clearly correlates with the loss of young soldiers. And to me, that, that speaks of the, the regiments of bereaved mothers that we don't hear that much about, and also of the regiments of women forever who have lost their babies in a sort of domestic grief, a sort of undervalued, not very glamorous, everyday suffering, which is not often seen as dare I say it, quite as important as the sort of international sudden violence of lots of men dying together. Obviously grief is not a competition and neither is suffering, but I think that Rebecca West definitely wanted to bring something out about that, that it's not just men who suffer, 
in war, and actually women suffer quite a lot anyway. So then we've got Kitty, the wife. She's exceptionally beautiful and brittle, and presented by Jenny as a heartless, snobby little sort of glamour puss. Um, Jenny almost dehumanises her. There's a, a bit of description, page 96, I have it here. So Kitty lay about like a broken doll, face downward on a sofa with one limp arm dangling to the floor or protruding stiff feet in fantastic slippers from the end of her curtained bed. Well, to me, Kitty looks like a woman in profound grief. She's lost her child. We learn almost in a throwaway line that she's also not going to have any more children, but we're never told why, just that, oh, that can't be. She's lost her husband, first to war, then to this shell shock, and thus to this other woman, in a manner which also means Kitty loses the entirety of her marriage because her own past with Chris is, is discounted in her husband's eyes. That marriage never existed. And it's some litany of, of loss. Here's how Jenny describes Kitty's behaviour the day before her husband is due back. She knows that he's got amnesia. She knows that he's calling for his childhood sweetheart and that he's forgotten her existence. So Kitty, whose beauty was as changed in grief from its ordinary seeming as a rose in moonlight is different from a rose by day, took me down after lunch to the greenhouses and had a snappishly competent conversation about the year's vegetables with Pipe, the gardener. After she had said many such horticulturally scandalous things as, I know Queen Mary's prolific, but she isn't sweet, she tugged at my hand, and we went back to the house and found a great piece of the afternoon still on our hands. So Kitty went into the drawing room and filled the house with the desolate merriment of an inattentively played pianola while I sat in the hall and wrote letters and noticed how sad dance music has sounded ever since the war began. And then she started a savage raid of domestic efficiency and made the housemaids cry because the brass handles of the tall boys were not bright enough and because there was only a ten to one instead of a hundred to one risk of breaking a leg on the parquet. After that, she had tea and hated the soda cake. She was a little shrunk thing, huddled in the armchair furthest from the light when at last the big car came nosing up the drive through the dusk. So, yeah, Kitty behaves badly. I can't help thinking one would. To me, Kitty is as wounded as Chris, and I do think the West is doing it, this on purpose to show the price paid at home and to show that the grief and suffering of women is not, even when the women themselves downplay it out of loyalty and a desire to support, secondary to the grief and suffering of men. Unfortunately, she does also come over as a bit of a cow, but I do support her, I feel for her, and I want to defend her from all the people who have always said, that kitty, what a terrible, terrible cow she is. And yet again, I'm really embarrassed at how similar my character, Julia Locke, who people hate. <laughs> she is shockingly like her. So the dilemma is, do they seek to return Chris to himself, so-called, to the hostile real world, or do they let him stay in his unreal Arcadia? which is the real Chris, and which is the more valid reality. When, at the end, Chris is cured, Jenny is watching him out of the window. Jenny, Jenny, how does he look? Kitty asks. And Jenny says to the reader, he wore a dreadful, decent smile. He walked 
not loose-limbed like a boy, as he had done that very afternoon, but with the soldier's hard tread upon the heel. Jenny replies to Kitty, he looks every inch a soldier. And Kitty cries out in joy, he's cured. So, I've worked out this thing. The multitude of meanings in the title, The Return of the Soldier, comes to the surface at the end. We have, number one, the physical return of Chris to Blighty. Then we have the emotional return of Chris to Margaret, back in the old days. We have the mental return of Chris to his youth. We have Margaret's return of Chris to Kitty in the end. We have the women's return of Chris to sanity and consensual reality, which is, in effect, the return of the soldier to Chris himself, because while in Arcadia, in the Arcadia of amnesia, Chris has not been a soldier. He has been a happy, carefree boy. I'm reading this because it's too complicated for me to remember without reading it. So what is returned to Kitty is not what she wants, though she doesn't know that yet. She thinks that he's cured, but he is not the husband she had before. He is this new creature, the soldier, who brings the war home with him. And with the return of the soldier to the man, Chris is returned to all the grief and misery of war, to the memory of the death of his child, and to emotional emotional responsibility for his suffering wife. At which stage it occurred to me that the word amnesty, as well as the word amnesia, comes from the Greek for forgetting. So Chris is losing a kind of amnesty that he had worked out within himself. Or, you can read the whole thing as about sex, Freudianism, class mobility the decline of the empire, the loss of the golden age of before the war, as an ode to the vanishing beauty of the English landscape, or as a disguised account of Rebecca West's love affair with H.G. Wells. <laughs> I only touch the surface. There are so many ways to read it and so much to learn from it, and it is 140 pages long. I can't recommend it too highly. Thank you, Louisa. I just wanted to quickly ask you about um, women writing about the war. It's quite interesting that this was published in... What year was it published? 1918. 1918. And, and for example, uh, Rose McCauley's Non-Combatants and Other was published in 1916. Mm. And I can't think of many English novels about the war that were actually published during the war. And I wonder if that's something to do with the combatants having to... Um, recollect in tranquility and, and, and publish later that the women on the whole, although of course a lot were, were nurses and were, were subjected to as much danger as men. I wonder if, if that's the difference between men and women writing about the First World War. I think that's a really good point, and I wish I'd thought of it. Um, yeah, clearly, because the men were either fighting or in some kind of trauma, and no doubt they, you know, some of them in hospital or wherever may well have been writing, but they weren't going to be ready to, to publish until later, whereas the women, I think, who were thinking in terms of the war and who were writers were phenomenally mentally active because of that sense of helplessness. You know, a man knew what he had to do. He had to, you know, sign up and go and get his head blown off. But a woman did not know what to do. And, I mean, my useless character, Julia, is desperate to do something, but she doesn't, she hasn't a clue. She's got no education. She's terribly pretty. She's only ever meant to get married and be nice. 
And she was just as useless as any of us would be if we'd never had the idea that we could be something more than that. So what she ends up doing is getting a sort of terrible facelift so that she can mm. be beautiful enough to make her husband happy when he comes home. I think um, I, I've just suddenly remembered, actually, I can think of a, a novel by a man published during the war, and that's Henri Barbus's Le Feur, which actually is a French novel, mm. and it was enormously influential on people like Owen and Sassoon because it was not only published in France in 1916, it was, it was translated straight into English in the mm. same year. Well, with phenomenal immediacy about yes. publishing at the time, yes. and people writing books about the war and you know the entire war, which came out in you know, sort of February 1915, and you know Sorry. hindsight is marvellous. They didn't have that. Well, thank you very much, Louisa. Um, we're now going to move on to Michael, um, um, who will be reading some poems. So we've had uh, we've had the uh, the book written on the home front in the war. We're now getting into the poems that were written there. Uh, Michael Longley um, hardly needs an introduction. Uh, His first full-length collection of poetry, No Continuing City, was published in 1969, since when he's published eight further collections, as well as selected and collected poems. Among the many awards he's received are the Whitbread Poetry Prize for Goose Fires in 1991, the T.S. Eliot Prize, the Hawthornden Prize, and the Irish Times Poetry Prize for The Weather in Japan in 2000. He was awarded the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry in 2001 and the Wilfred Owen Award, which honours a poet for sustained body of work that includes memorable war poems, and that was in 2003. He was the Ireland Professor of Poetry from 2007 to 2010, and his most recent volume, A Hundred Doors, published in 2011, won the Irish Times Poetry Now Award. He's also a distinguished editor of the works of other poets, notably Louis McNeese, W.R. Rogers, and, and most relevant to us this evening, Robert Graves, and with his wife, Edna Longley, Edward Thomas. Michael. Um, my father uh, joined up in September 1914 as a boy soldier, just 16 years old, and miraculously survived the war. He won the military cross and was a captain by the age of 20. He continues to haunt me. I wonder, I wonder to myself sometimes, did he ever share a woodbine? with one of the war poets. They have had a huge influence on my life and work. Their great poems reach out beyond the confines of the trenches, back to Homer and forward to the present day. Poems such as Wilfred Owen's Insensibility and Isaac Rosenberg's Dead Man's Dump put me in mind of choruses by Sophocles and Aeschylus. The first poem I'm going to read is by Siegfried Sassoon. Now, his work is usually celebrated for its documentary and satirical modes. Uh, The Dugout, a short poem, is one of the finest 
great war poems, which surprises me when it doesn't get into most of the anthologies. It modulates from documentary details into a, a transcendental key. <clears throat> the Dugard. Why do you lie with your legs ungainly huddled and one arm bent across your sullen, cold, exhausted face? It hurts my heart to watch you, deep-shadowed from the candle's guttering gold. And you wonder why I shake you by the shoulder. Drowsy, you mumble and sigh and turn your head. You are too young to fall asleep forever. And when you sleep, you remind me of the dead. Now those last two lines are in italics and they might be a fragment of Sappho, but from Sappho. And if they were a fragment from Sappho, they would be world famous. But they're by Siegfried Sassoon and they are immortal. You are too young to fall asleep forever. And when you sleep, you remind me of the dead. In its music and movement, Wilfred Owen's The Send-Off seems to symbolize the departure of all the soldiers to the Great War. The send-off. Down the close, darkening lanes they sang their way to the siding shed and lined the train with faces grimly gay. Their breasts were stuck all white with wreath and spray as men's are dead. Dull porters watched them and a casual tramp stood staring hard, sorry to miss them from the upland camp. Then, unmoved, signals nodded, and a lamp winked to the guard. So secretly, like wrongs hushed up, they went. They were not ours. We never heard to which front these were sent. Nor there, if they yet mock what women meant who gave them flowers. Shall they return to beating of great bells in wild train loads? A few, a few, too few for drums and yells may creep back silent to village wells up half-known roads. I recently edited and introduced the selected poems of Robert Graves. Um, I was eager to restore him to his proper place among the great war poets. Last Day of Leave was written years after the war. Great war poetry did not stop being written in 1918. War poems are often love poems too. And for me this was a, 
major discovery, uh, this heartbreaking poem, <clears throat> The Last Day of Leave, by Robert Graves. We five looked out over the moor at rough hills blurred with haze and a still sea, our tragic day, bountiful from the first. We would spend it by the lily lake, high in a fold beyond the farthest ridge, following the cart track till it faded out. The time of berries and bell heather. Yet all that morning nobody went by but shepherds and one old man carting turfs. We were in love, he with her, she with him, and I the youngest, the odd man out, as deep in love with a yet nameless muse. No cloud, larks and heath butterflies, and herons undisturbed fishing the streams, a slow, cool breeze that hardly stirred the grass. When we hurried down the rocky slope, a flock of ewes galloping off in terror, there shone the water lilies, yellow and white. Deep water and a shelving bank, off went our clothes, and in we went, all five, diving like trout between the lily groves. The basket had been nobly filled, wine and fresh rolls, chicken and pineapple, or braggadocio under threat of war. The fire on which we boiled our kettle, we fed with ling and rotten blackthorn root, and the coffee tasted memorably of peat. Two of us might stray off together, but never less than three kept by the fire, focus of our uncertain destinies. We spoke little, our minds in tune. A sire laugh would settle any theme. The sun so hot, it made the rocks quiver. But when it rolled down level with us, four pairs of eyes sought mine as if appealing for a blind fate aversive afterward. Do you remember the lily lake? We were all there, all five of us in love, not one yet killed, widowed, or broken-hearted. Edward Thomas's In Memoriam, Easter 1915, is a poem about absence. It's amazing how much a great poet can squeeze into four lines. In memoriam, Easter 1915. The flowers left thick at nightfall in the wood this Easter tide call into mind the men now far from home who, with their sweethearts, should have gathered them and will do never again. Isaac Rosenberg 
fastens onto particular trench images, lice, larks, and in break of day in the trenches, a queer sardonic rat. He makes his poems open out from such images to cosmic vistas of the landscapes of war. Break of day in the trenches. The darkness crumbles away. It is the same old druid time as ever. Only a live thing leaps my hand, a queer sardonic rat, as I pull the parapet's poppy to stick behind my ear. Droll rat, they would shoot you if they knew your cosmopolitan sympathies. Now you have touched this English hand, you will do the same to a German soon, no doubt, if it be your pleasure to cross the sleeping green between. It seems you you inwardly grin as you pass strong eyes, fine limbs, haughty athletes, less chanced than you for life. Bonds to the whims of murder, sprawled in the bowels of the earth, the torn fields of France. What do you see in our eyes at the shrieking iron and flame hurled through still heavens? What quaver, what heart aghast? Poppies whose roots are in man's veins drop and are ever dropping, but mine in my ear is safe just a little white with the dust. Uh, Two years ago, I stood behind Isaac Rosenberg's nephew as he kneeled at his uncle's grave and, according to Jewish custom, placed a pebble on the headstone. I later wrote a short poem about this a pebble kneeling he lays on Isaac Rosenberg his uncle's headstone a pebble a paperweight holding down the poems for him and the other pilgrims I read aloud dead man's dump one of the greatest poems in the world I say, is he really buried here? His face keeps reappearing, his nephew with a pebble, his long, sad, Treblinka face. And my last poem I'll introduce briefly. Um, When I was a boy, I brought home from school a harmonica, a mouth organ. And much to my surprise, my father picked it up and played it rather well. I'd never heard him play a musical instrument before, but he and his comrades in the trenches had taught themselves to play the harmonica. For years, I wanted to write about this, but it wasn't until I read about the early Greek philosopher Anaximenes 
that I was able to. Anaximenes breathed life into my memory. Anaximenes believed that air was the basis of creation. In, in my poem Harmonica, I salute all the voices of the Great War. It's seven lines long. Harmonica. A Tommy drops his harmonica in no man's land. My dad, like old Anaximenes, breathes in and out through the holes and reeds and finds this melody. Our souls are air. They hold us together. Listen. A music hall favorite lasts until the end of time. My dad is playing it. His breath contains the world. The wind is playing an orchestra of harmonicas. Thank you very much, Michael. I thought it was interesting that perhaps apart from the Rosenberg, you mentioned that you were reading a Sassoon poem that wasn't satirical or savage or gory as, as we think of them. And I thought it was interesting that you chose the elegiac poets. But what I, what poems. But what I wanted to ask you was, um, you said that you'd put the Graves poem uh, in your selected poems, and I know that that poem is not in Graves' own selection of his own poetry. And, and I think I'm right in saying that Graves, when he put together his selected poems, removed uh, the large majority of his war poems. And I wanted to ask about, um, is that, do you think, because he wanted to get away, he wanted to say goodbye to all that, if you like, to the war. In a way, people, obviously Owen and, and Rosenberg were killed, so they had no afterlife. Whereas Sassoon and Blunden are people for whom the war seemed never to go away, and in a way that they kept writing about the war, and, and I think I'm right in saying that Graves didn't. Do you, do you have any theories about that? Um, it is a bit of a mystery. Uh, most poets hold on to their good poems. <laughs> um, uh, Graves, I don't think, was the best judge of his own work. And uh, towards the end of his life, uh, he, he was not a judge. He, couldn't really, he, he really lost, lost the run of himself, as we say in Ireland. Um, I suspect that he thought his war poems weren't as good as those of Sassoon and Owen. And, I, and Rosenberg and um, but they are in fact really I was surprised how much I, I liked them and um, I think he was wrong and uh, I'm very pleased to uh, reinstate him as I, I don't think the, the story of First World War poetry is complete without his Right, well, thank you. Well, there you are. If you've got, as I have, two editions, I think three editions of Graves' poems without them, you can buy Michael's where the war poems are, are replaced. Um, our last speaker, uh, we're now going to go way past the war in a way Michael did with his own poems um, to a trilogy of novels uh, written and published in the 1990s. Um, Timberlake Wurtenbaker is going to introduce them. 
Uh, Timberlake is probably still best known for her play Our Country's Good, 1990, which was based on a novel by Thomas Keneally, um, in which a penal colony in New South Wales in the 1780s uh, mounts a production of George Farquhar's restoration play, The Recruiting Officer. It won the Evening Standard Award for Most Promising Playwright, the Laurence Olivier BBC Award for Best New Play, and in America, the Drama Critics Circle Award for Best New Foreign Play. Among her many other plays are Three Birds Alighting in a Field, which won both the Critics Circle Theatre Award and the Writers Guild Award for Best West End Play, After Darwin, and The Line in 2009, which is about the relationship between Degas and Suzanne Valadon. She's also made numerous translations and adaptations of other writers' works, notably Euripides, Sophocles and Racine. The continuity of war and the trauma suffered by combatants is the subject of her most recent play, R. Ajax, which was produced last year at the Southwark Playhouse, which draws on both Sophocles and interviews with present-day servicemen and women. Timberlake. I will talk about Pat Barker's Regeneration Trilogy, set during the First World War, but I'm going to cheat a bit and start with something else. An event took place contrary to human reason and to the whole of human nature. Millions of people committed against each other such a countless number of villainies, deceptions, thefts, betrayals, robberies, arsons, and murders as the annals of the law courts of the world could not assemble in whole centuries in which at that period of time the people who committed them did not look upon as crimes. What produced this extraordinary event? This is from Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace set during the War of 1812. When you ask it like that, the mind stares into the abyss. There are no words that will answer what produced this extraordinary event contrary to human reason and human nature, which is also World War I. I think that writers, male and female, are tormented by war. Our job is to look at human beings, preferably with love and at least with some sympathy, and to try to make sense But with war, we're suddenly forced to look at events and behavior where sense, more often than not, and and more often than not, sympathy cracks open. You can then plaster this with portraits of nobility. You can alleviate it with comedy. Or you can, like Pat Barker, peer directly into the cracks. In her Regeneration trilogy, she studies the cracked minds of the officers who were sent to Craiglockhart, the hospital near Edinburgh, run by the English anthropologist, neurologist, ethnologist, and psychiatrist, an extraordinary man, W.H.R. Rivers, who's referred to simply as Rivers throughout the book. Rivers, of course, existed, as do most of Pat Barker's characters. Her research is meticulous. There are three novels of immense complicity. Of, uh, sorry, there are three novels of immense complicity and complexity, and it's impossible to summarise it. I mean, we would be here all night. I won't even try. The first book, Regeneration, centres on the encounter between Siegfried Sassoon and Rivers. 
So soon after being decorated with the military cross and sent home with a wound, wrote a powerful anti-war statement. To keep him from being court-martialed, his friends, including Robert Graves, sent him to Craig Lockhart, where Rivers was treating officers suffering from what was called shell shock with the purpose of getting them fit enough to go back to the front. The first irony of the book is here. So soon has to be deemed insane in order to take the sting out of his pamphlet in which he calls the war evil and unjust, that is, insane. He then has to be proved sane enough to return to the insanity of war. So soon at the end of the book does indeed return to the front and will then behave with such insane bravery that it is clearly a bid for suicide. In between, Pat Barker weaves various stories, including the story of Billy Pryor, which is, in fact, um, fictionalized, who is an officer from the working class who arrives at Craig Lockhart suffering from mutism and then severe memory lapses. The standard treatment for hysterical mutism was the administration of electric shock so that the patient would have to scream. One of the more harrowing scenes of the book describes what amounts to torture. Rivers uses the talking cure, which seems more humane, and slowly gets the men to remember what they have suppressed. This is part of the meaning of regeneration, Um, which is in the title. It's based on experiments that Rivers himself conducted on the regeneration of nerves. What Rivers discovered in those experiments was that this process of regeneration was very painful, particularly at the beginning of recovery, before the body had learned to re-mask pain, as it were. And he sees the parallels in what he's doing now. In advising his patients to remember the traumatic events that had led to their being sent here, this is Pat Barker, he was in effect inflicting pain and doing so in pursuit of a treatment that he knew to be still largely experimental. He was aware as a constant background to his work of a conflict between his belief that the war must be fought to a finish for the sake of the succeeding generations and his horrors that such events as those which had led to a patient's breakdown should be allowed to continue. It seems the mind cannot heal if it does not remember. But these memories cause extreme, it's the word Rivers uses, extreme pain. And finally, that healing of the mind has no other purpose than to send men to more suffering and probably more breakdown. There is a crack, then, in the very purpose of healing. The second book, even more complex, look at other cracks, class and sexual ones. Billy Pryor is a working-class lad who's become an officer because he's brilliant and has been well-educated by a priest who's abused him, sexually abused him. He is totally bisexual himself, longing for his girl as he engages in various gay encounters. Rivers himself was probably gay, as was Siegfried Sassoon, as well as Wilfred Owen, who appears throughout and gets a lesson, in fact, in the writing of poetry from Sassoon. It's a lovely scene, which I can't read, but I recommend um, anyone to read that. So we come to another contradiction of which Rivers is aware. The deep love and physical intimacy that can develop between men in the trenches is necessary to any well-functioning army and therefore glorified, but creates the fear in the home country that this is leading to homosexuality, which was then, of course, illegal, as well as to other kind of degeneracies, such as the emancipation of women and something called the cult of the clitoris. 
This was real. Um, the third book follows River's journey to the headhunters of Melanesia and Billy Pryor's return to the front through a series of letters he writes to River's. At the end of the trilogy, the strands come painfully together. Billy Pryor's last letter to Rivers goes thus. Five months ago, Charles Manning offered me a job at the Ministry of Munitions, and I turned it down and said, if I was sent back to France, if, 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 I shall sit in a dugout and look back to this afternoon, and I shall think, you bloody fool. Well, here I am in what passes for a dugout, and I look round me at all these faces, and all I can think is, what an utter bloody fool I would have been not to come back. We move to the hospital ward in London, where Pryor's fellow officer Hallett, who has lost half his face and half his brain, lies dying, surrounded by his mother, father, and his girlfriend. Hallett had been silent, but now the whisper began, only more loudly. Shovafet, Shovafet, again and again, increasing in volume as he directed all his strength into the cry. His mother tried to soothe him, but he didn't hear. Shnafavet, Shnafavet, again and again, each time louder, ringing across the ward. He opened his one eye and gazed directly at Rivers, who had come from behind the screens and was standing at the foot of his bed. What's he saying, Major Hallett, who's his father, asked. Rivers opened his mouth to say he didn't know and then realized he did. He's saying it's not worth it. Oh, it is worth it, it is, Major Hallett said, gripping his son's hand. Shavafet. The cry rose again, and now the other patients were growing restless. A buzz of protest, not against the cry, but in support of it. A wordless murmur from damaged brains and drooping mouths. Shnavafet, Shnavafet. I can't stand much more of this, Major Hallett said. The mother's eyes never, let his son's, never left her son's face. Her lips were moving, though she made no sound. Rivers was aware of a pressure building in his own throat, as that single cry from the patients went on and on. He could not afterwards be sure that he had succeeded in keeping silent or whether he too had joined in. And then suddenly it was over. Wilfred Irwin and the fictional Billy Pryor, both of the Manchester's regiment, died five days before the armistice in an insane attack on the Somme. On the edge of the canal, the Manchester's lie eyes still open, limbs not yet decently arranged, for the stretcher-bearers have departed with the last of the wounded and the dead are left alone. The battle has withdrawn from them. The bridge they succeeded in building was destroyed by a single shell. The sun has risen. The first shaft strikes the water and creeps towards them along the bank, discovering here the back of a hand, there the side of a neck, lending a rosy glow to skin from which the blood has fed, and then, finding nothing here that can respond to it, the shaft of light passes over them and begins to probe the distant fields. Regeneration was, I think, the first book I read, which suggests that the only way to deal with war and the history of war is to break down. The mind can't make sense of it. It also occurred to me that Pat Barker was a woman, there is a question of what women writing about men in war, and of course we've just touched on this, can bring to the experience. I suppose I believe women are good at the study of cracks. 
I read the book shortly before, after it was published in 1991, and then I forgot about it. When I was researching mental breakdown in Afghanistan for my play R. Ajax, the book was always beneath the surface. Ajax is about the mental breakdown of a commander, just as all of Pat Barker's characters are officers. Being in command brings particular stresses in that these men have to lead, have to pretend sometimes to a courage they don't feel, or to a belief in war they don't have. This makes for wider cracks, and when they do break down, it's terrible. Dangerous for the morale of the army, but also for them. And for most of them, the only way out is suicide. This mental breakdown, now called combat-related post-traumatic stress disorder, can be traced from Sophocles through Shakespeare to to Pat Barker and now. It is both the same and not the same with every war. I was interested when rereading the book to see that Rivers was dealing with the suppression of memory. The men can't remember. But in the present, you have the appearance of flashbacks, which apparently you didn't have in the First World War. The memory isn't so much suppressed as, fro- as frozen and then constantly blinking. If men couldn't remember before, now they can't forget. I think our own attitude to the First World War has varied from suppression to insistent flashback. And the healing process, as with a traumatized soldier themselves, can only come through talking. The stories, that is, words, may help us heal what is our general historical trauma, the terrible cracks in our own past history. But there is a final er irony, which was pointed out to me by the excellent writer Nikki Wright, who is adapting the first book of Regeneration for the stage this summer. He reminded me that everyone in the book, including Rivers, stutters, and this could be a problem in performance. Rivers, trying to analyze his own stammer, believed he had seen something he shouldn't. Anyone looking at war sees something they shouldn't. And we mustn't be surprised that the words we need to tell what we saw are themselves cracked. Thank you very much, Tim Blake. I just want to ask you one quick question, then we'll open it up to the floor. Um, Pat Barker said someone, I can't remember whether it's in the trilogy, she said, the Somme is like the Holocaust. It revealed things that we cannot come to terms with and cannot forget. It never becomes the past. And it was interesting you were talking about Tolstoy and, as it were, springing, and we, you know, guess where this came from. And also, of course, your own play, Our Ajax, draws upon... Um, Sophocles, going way, way back, and people who are fighting in wars now. And I wondered whether you thought that this was a sort of truth, that actually wars, there is a sort of continuity that just goes on. I think there are two things. I think there is a continuity because we don't forget wars, interestingly enough. I think we we have a better memory of our wars than of our peace. But also we deal again and again with the repetition of war. It seems to me every time it's supposed to be the last of the wars. I mean, 1812 was supposed to be the last war. The First World War, of course, would be, was supposed to be the last war. And it's as if we have th- these layers of history which, which, in a way, I think, melt. Um, and, I think, and I think that's what she's talking about, you know, that, that, that they, the history does not disappear and, um, you, you know, there's, there's never an anachronism when you talk about war. It's always there. It's always present. And, um... 
Well, I think there's a, a, an interesting discussion we can have mm. at some point, perhaps in the question answer with Michael's work and mm. his, his war poetry, yes. which, which draws on the classics a great deal. And there is that sense of... And in the First World War, a lot of those classically trained young officers were sort of going off to places where battles had been fought in the ancient world and were very much aware of it. Um, but I now want to open up to the floor. There are, is one or two roving microphones. Um, could you speak clearly... Could you announce your name and, if relevant, where you're from, if you're representing an institution or something? And please keep your questions concise. Only ask one of them and don't try and deliver a lecture. Anyone who starts by saying, this isn't so much a question, I will cut off immediately. So if you just put up your hand and we will try and get round as many as we can. Yes, Jean in front. Uh, Jean Moorcroft-Wilson. I've written about the war poets myself, and I'm always fascinated. This is mainly directed to Michael, who read us such a wonderful selection from them. Um, I'm always fascinated by what it was in the First World War that brought out such an extraordinary amount of amazing poetry. I mean, you know, in the case of Sassoon, he didn't write poetry that was at all remembered until the First World War. Rosenberg is the same. And Edward Thomas, whom I'm finishing a book on at the moment, of course, as you will know very well indeed from Edna's wonderful book, Edward Thomas didn't even really begin to write poetry until the First World War came along. Right. I, I'll just repeat the gist of that question in case people didn't hear. I don't know. Can you hear at the back with the roving microphone? You can. Well, it's, it's basically what... And I think it's ba- mainly addressed to, to Michael. And it's about what it was about the war that made people poets or changed, um, I think, to, you, you instance Sassoon, who wrote sort of rather um, sort of pastoral work until the First World War. I, I don't think um, uh, most poems aren't solo flights. Um, they usually... What helps to generate them is um, groupings. I I think one of the most significant uh, get-togethers, really, in the history of English poetry was at Craig Lockhart, where um, you had Sassoon and Owen and Graves, and they were all looking at each other's... uh, And there was a, a huge leap. Uh, When when such people... When there are these gatherings... Uh, there, there are convection currents uh, which lift everyone upwards. Um, uh, Edward Thomas now didn't get going really until he was friendly with um, Robert Frost. And uh, I think that's the, one of the reasons. Um, then there is just the, the mystery of, um, of, of coincidence of talents. Um, and there's also this strange thing whereby young men, whether they actually think it, at some deep level they feel it, that they don't have very long to live. Um, and it's not just Warports, John Keats, for instance. And uh, somehow or other, although they don't live very long, uh, there's a completion about their work. And you can talk about their lives work even though they died in their 20s or, or their 30s. 
But at the back of it all is just the mystery of where the poems come from. But I, think, I do think we, we can't underestimate the power of, of friendship. Thank you, Michael. Another question. Yes, there's a lady just up there. Thank you. Theresa Van Excerpt, just local person. I wondered why we have so little about what the women did in the First World War. We all know that the upper classes opened their empty homes as hospitals and rest homes, but ordinary families were machining the uniforms for the, for the men. Um, women with families became postmen and policemen and firemen, but the worst possible job that these women did, and a lot of them were actually moved up to a sort of place built on the Clyde, where they filled the shells with the chemicals needed. They made the munitions that were needed for the war. Think of the millions of them that they made for that war. And after the war, um, the, they found that the cordite and the TNT turned their skins yellow. And so much so that it was a well-known fact that women were called yellow canaries. Yes, and the only book I know about it, since we're all uh, advocating books, is Kate Adie's recent book, Monuments to the First World War. Yeah. But why is this part so neglected? I, I think, well, I would like... I, I know it sounds terribly sexist to ask the two women, but since they've both they, I've written about women in war. Um, Timberlake, first. Well, I, I, I think um, the, the middle... Uh, book of Pat Barker's trilogy is very much about that. I mean, the Billy Pryor's girlfriend works in the munitions and has the yellow skin, and, and she has a—I mean, she, she has a brilliant ear for any kind of di- dialogue, Pat Barker, but particularly for working-class women. And so, I think if you read that middle book, you will you will find that there is a lot about women. That even though the the, the book is a, you know ostensibly well, it isn't. It's about men and women. And if the hero is Billy Pryor, the the girlfriend who's very visible is is Sarah. And, um, and Louisa, I think um, it's true to say that um, in fact there are a lot of women uh, academics and historians now writing about the First World War. People like Joanna Burke. Um, and do you think that, that we're going to see much more? I mean, the centenary is a time for, for things to, new things to happen. Do you think there's going to be more about these, these aspects that the speaker thought were being ignored or have been overlooked? Uh, yes, I do. I, I think that there is a tendency... I mean, I can only speak as a novelist. There is a tendency among novelists to be nervous of things that they cannot know. And certainly for me as a woman now writing about soldiers in the trenches or wherever you know my god I'm going to meet a soldier one day and he's going to say to me you are completely wrong and I'm going to feel like a fraud so one has to get over that Um, but I think for women writing about the first world war it was not always seemly possible something had to be got over before women could write about it at all and the respect for the subjects which are traditionally seen as, you know, female historical topics, the social history, the domestic history, the stuff that I find fascinating. And although I'm a history graduate, I realised I didn't have a single female teacher after the age of 16. Um, And I did the Corn Laws until they were coming out of my ears, but nobody ever taught me anything or encouraged me to study about women's history. And I look now at the book, I mean, so many 
history books available now which go into all this stuff in detail. It is only a matter of time before even more women authors start getting in there and pillaging them. Can, can I just put yes, in a plug for a new anthology of First World War Portrait by Tim Kendall, which includes quite a large number of, of, of mm. women poets. And also I read about ten years ago a very, very good history of, I've forgotten the name of the book and the author, I'm ashamed to admit, a very good book about the nurses uh, in the trenches. Is it the Lynn MacDonald, no, The Roses of No Man's Land? That's it. And there's also there's a new Thomas Canale about the Australian nurses. I think part of it, though, as well, is that the upper-class and upper-middle-class women who were educated were more likely to be keeping diaries writing to their friends and that the Canaries perhaps were less likely to be recording their own stories at a time. At, at, at the time. They're probably too busy and not, not as educated as their perhaps more leisurely, posher sisters. I think there were some books at the time. There's a... I think it's called Memories and Base Details by Lady Angela Forbes, and she was one of these upper-class mm. women who took a, an ambulance and a, and a canteen mm. around the front. And um, uh, she obviously was a complete nightmare, but she probably had to be to do that job. <laughs> Tobias, any recommendations of women writing about the war? Thinking of non-fiction rather than fiction. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm still thinking about... I think it's... A, it's, it's it's an incredible enrichment of, of the subject when we do get that. Um, there was wonderful stuff. Um, I've just been writing about uh, 48, so it was very good primary material in the Second World War from, from women's point of view, of course, um, including the BBC for a long time had um, a fantastic online archive of first-hand interviews of um, working on the home front by women, um, experiences of the Blitz, of, of that incredible, but of course that's for the, the Second World War. For the First World War, it's um, it's, uh, it's 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 so far different. I'm going to do just what Michael did because I'm going to recommend a book and I can't remember the name of the author. And it was only published last year, but it's a book called Wounded, and it's written by a woman. And perhaps you'll remember. She's just been shortlisted for the Welcome Prize. What's her name? Emily Mayhew. Emily Mayhew, and that um, what she does is she describes what happens when someone is injured in battle in the First World War and takes them from there through all the, uh, the various medical stations and onto ambulance trains, which I, was something I'd not ever read about before, the ambulance trains, which were quite extraordinary, and I, I do recommend it for that reason, and until they get back to, to Blighty and hospital there. Um, sorry? Yes, there's um, someone just putting a hand up, <laughs> having to stand up. Hello, my name's uh, Christopher Moore. I run a bookshop and I specialise in books about the First World War. And the answer to the lady's question is that there were lots of books written by women about their experience during the war. Novels, non-fiction, women were very active at writing. Um, I happen to stock all of the books that have been mentioned. <laughs> it's, it's called The Great War Bookshop. Um, I, I'm not plugging it. I'm just saying that... You're doing pretty well. I do stock all the books that have been mentioned by everybody on the panel. Um, but I haven't sold any in the past year. But I can tell you who the voices that do sell. 
and the biggest selling voice of the Great War is Edward Thomas. I can sell almost any book I get about Edward Thomas because people are searching for it. I'm on, I, I, my bookshop is online, so people are searching for things. So they're, they're um, looking for particular voices. And after Edward Thomas, the voices that people are looking for are the authentic voices of combatants and relatives of combatants, the voices of people who experienced combat, the war, in the trenches. And not just English, but French and German uh, memoirs in translation are also very easy uh, to sell. Um, so when it comes to voices of the Great War, I just... Well, I will ask a question. Why do you think that is? Why is it that people who are sort of hardcore about the Great War are searching for particular voices, but modern books about the Great War, reimaginings, re-evocations, I'm finding hard to sell? Why would that be? Um, well, <laughs> I think it would be unfair to ask Louisa, having written one. Um, <laughs> my experience. I'm sure it's not your experience. I understand you're rolling in money. <laughs> um, I do have one point. It could be all the authors of the uh, reimaginings who are buying all the original works. <laughs> I, I think that the, the point you make about the voices is interesting because I think um, uh, oral history, uh, I, the, the Imperial War Museum, I think, started collecting people's reminiscences on tape. Uh, back in the 70s, but that was quite late because even by then a lot of the veterans were dying out. But I think that's also to do with the way history is taught, as it were, from the bottom up. And of course, it's, it was always said that um, the war poets were a wholly uh, Rosenberg apart, and of course there were others, were a wholly unrepresentative uh, upper middle class officer class, and therefore you're not getting um, the, the authentic voice, however much they, they might have. Um, they, they might have sympathised with the men. You were getting their ventriloquising Owen and Sassoon rather than the real voices. Do we have another question? Yes. Hello, my name's Andy Ryan. I'm the director of, hello, <laughs> of um, City Read London. Um, every April we ask the whole city to pick up a book and read it together, and this year our book is My Dear, I Wanted to Tell You by Louisa. Um, and my question is for Louisa, and it's following on from the question about um, why there aren't many uh, more people talking about um, females in the First World War. Um, obviously... Um, Pat Barker had her Regeneration trilogy and then she follows it up very recently with um, Life Class and, um, and, and the other books. And I just wondered if, um, if Louisa had any plans um, to return to the First World War um, for, other, for, for other books in the future. Louisa? Um, I mean, apart from the one that's coming out in May, presumably. Well, Tobias and I were just talking about this because his new book is set from 1948 to 58, is that right? So it's about and, um, what was promised? What was promised. My book is set in 19, and it's called The Hero's Welcome. Um, so we've got a bit of an overlap there. Of part of the war is coming back and surviving the war back in civilian world. So to me, again, that's very, very interesting because it seems more realistic. It's more... It's, not easier, maybe more familiar. I don't know, we all deal with crisis. And it's easier to write about crisis on the home front if you've never been to war, which I never have. First generation of my family not to be in the Navy for 
since records began, and records only began because they were in the Navy. Um, so, yes, and then I'm writing another one which is set in 1938. So, again, it's back in the, the, the pre-shadow of the war or the post-shadow. I mean, wars just give so much opportunity, whether you're doing it from writing about direct experience or, you know, making it up with history in mind. I, I'm just... I don't think I'm going to be able to write about any war that happened in my lifetime, though, because there's just too many toes to tread on. But past wars, they're always going to intrigue us, always, and horrify us. Tobias, I think I'm right in saying that you've written... I mean, I know that you've written, you've written novels set in the past. You've also written a novel set in the future. And I wonder, are you drawn at all, um, and now you're doing the aftermath of the Second World War, are you drawn at all to write about the First World War as a fiction writer? Uh, I'm drawn to writing about... Uh, Conflict, I think. Tim Lave is talking about cracks. Um, I'm interested in collisions, which I think is, is, is another word for the same thing, really. And, of course, war uh, is, is one ultimate uh, arena for those collisions. But writing about the aftermath of the war or, or, or the run-up gives uh, a, an excellent opportunity to look at the other sides, what happens in the families when the men don't return home or, or return home damaged? What, what are the children doing after the war? You know, this, is, this, is, this is what I find interesting. I, I find what, what, what are the children doing is, 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 is interesting, I think. Mm, yeah. Preparing for the next war. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, I think we have to stop now because we're, we're over time. Um, so um, I'd like to thank you all for coming, first of all. Um, all the people on this stage have books for sale. Um, <laughs> Since we've already had one advert for books being for sale, uh, they're outside and everyone is prepared to sign them if that's what you'd like. Um, I'd like to thank the LSE and um, the Royal Society of Literature for hosting this event. Um, And I think all I need to say at the end is that in Alan Bennett's The History Boys, uh, the teach the history teacher is trying to teach the First World War. And it's the battle that we have at the moment, or the battle certainly entrenched views about whether it was a good war, whether it was a bad war, whether it was a just war, whether it was an unjust war. Uh, Revisionist historians saying, in fact, the generals weren't all idiots. It was often very well fought. And um, the the, the boy's answer to, to the teacher is, you can't explain away the poetry. Art wins in the end. And I think from what we've heard this evening, art has certainly won out. So thank you all very much. Uh, Tobias.